0: Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. It's always exciting to meet the coolest people around the globe and cool in the sense that They've been heart-centered in the journey of their career. And this gentleman today, I'm so excited to talk about. And you'll see why as I I unveil this conversation that's going to come. So I would like to welcome Ed Cronin To the show. And Ed, before you tell me as I sit here in chilly Canada, that you're in Florida and it's 75 degrees, my heart is happy because I know you're semi-retired. You're not, you're not ready to hang up your shingle because the world needs your heart-centered leadership. But I want to truly welcome you to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Deb. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: So one of the things that I changed in season three. As I always introduced people, I read their bio, and I would tell our listeners, and our listeners are in 65 countries, Ed, so 65 countries are going to learn about you today. Tell us a little bit about your career in policing, and just give us a little Coles notes of Ed's story and background.
1: Yeah, um, it's a very untraditional background in the uh, law enforcement field, I didn't get into law enforcement till I was about 27, which I was grateful for because I was through my teens and growing times where I was becoming a little bit more mature in life. But um, I spent 15 years as a police officer and eventually became a detective. And I was a very active police officer, probably in the, at least in the top 10 percent in terms of all different activities from investigations to arrests to community work. And uh, I, as I was doing the work, I had the opportunity while I was working on a master's degree to go to Oxford, England, and I got introduced to the British criminal justice system. And uh, the big takeaway from that was it made me question how we did policing, And the idea that is very American that I had, like everybody else's, that we're the best. And part of my story is we're not the best. And uh, we have a long way to go. We do very well in many areas. But I went on from being a regular police officer to a police chief in a couple of cities. And I became exposed to systems thinking or systems dynamics, which led me to looking at the source of crime, which to me uh, has been gifted to me, I would say, is understanding systemic racism as being a really deep-seated problem in this country that we're still dealing with today and affecting the crime situations uh, in general, especially among minority groups and incarcerations of minorities. Uh, I went on and I did a lot of work internationally. And my last bit was working for the U.S. State Department in Moldova. Uh, Eastern Europe, which has been in the news a lot lately because of Ukraine. And I am delighted to say that while I was there, I was able to implement a systems approach there because my number one problem was corruption. And using a systems approach and listening and getting a lot of heartfelt testimony from people, I decided that the best way to approach this problem was the empowerment of women, which led to working on empowerment programs in the community from domestic violence to trafficking and everything else, all the way up to and including empowering the women police officers who were second-class citizens and weren't corrupt. So I've left there since I've left. Two people that I work with have ascended. One of them is the Minister of Internal Affairs. Another one is the Secretary for the Government people that I worked and trained with, and they also have a president, now a woman, was a graduate of Harvard University. So I like to think that things have gone pretty well.
0: Well, and this is why I love listening to you tell your story, because I can read your bio, and it would be magnificent, but it's just so rewarding for me to see how proud you are of the work that you've done internationally and it leads in nicely to my questions and we didn't even practice this because you don't even know what's coming we (laughs) were really imperfect on this show ed that's why it's called imperfect and i love it okay my first question is you talk a lot about the best use of your power and again this is in the context of leadership is to give it away. Tell us what you mean by that and and how you were able to exercise that and when you couldn't exercise it. Because I always love to give the listeners, we don't want to give them a half cup full. We want them to see, I tried to do it here and it didn't work and this is why. And I did it here and this is why it did work. Give them that real life example and coming from the root of law enforcement, I think this will be really impactful. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, thank you for that question. And uh, that always leads me to that beginning question of uh, what do I do to make the problem worse when I look at a problem? When I took over a city in Massachusetts of 40,000 people, uh, we had a higher crime rate per capita than our capital city of Boston. And I was brought in to do a war on crime to decrease violence and crime. And so, To make a long story very short, uh, we did try enforcement and it didn't work. So I began meeting with one of the things that was happening in my community, which is the same in many communities, most communities across the U.S., was the highest rate of violence was occurring in the minority communities. And one of the things that I realized was we need to be talking to people in this community. And I remember... Talking uh, to my commanders when I had taken over, and I said, "Who do we talk to in this community?" And one of my commanders came in with a stack of lawsuits, about twelve inches high, and put them on my table, and said, "That's how we talk to the community here. They sue us, and we defend ourselves, and most of the times we win." So I had to start at ground zero. I had to find out who who was who was even in my community. So. And I began doing that, meeting with people off the, off the job, but also on time. I was very much out of my office, which was not traditional in this department. And uh, finally, one day I got approached by a woman, a Latino woman, a uh, young woman in her 30s, brilliant, who's gone on and got her doctor's degree in Calif- and has her own organization in California today. But she was a young then, and uh, she was working, called in because the school system the public school system at the high school had a dropout rate of 40% for the minority students, all right? And she was brought in as a consultant to try to do something to make this better. And she came to me as the police chief and she didn't have a good experience with police in the past, but she knew she had to kind of like touch who I was. And uh, I asked her, I said, where are all the Latino men in this community that I can talk to? I mean, you know, what... What can I do here? And she says, well, what are you doing about it? I said, what do you mean? She says, you got all the power. You got the guns. You got the offices. You got the cars. You you got the budgets. You got the millions. What are you doing about it to make it better? And my first gut reaction was, uh, and then I started to think, wait a minute. So this began a listening process where she introduced me to a number of Latino mothers, who were very concerned about their kids that were going to school and how they were being discriminated against school and how they were being thrown out. And okay, so one day I went up to the high school just for the fun of it, just to get a a feel. And I'm standing in front of the high school, and the disciplinarian of the school is standing out in front of the high school screaming at a 16-year-old Latino kid outside the building saying, you're 16 next week, Jose, and I'm kicking you out. Because in Massachusetts, you can do it. That's how they were handling the problem. And then they'd pass it on to me. So these problems were not mutually exclusive. They were connected. So I began to see it and I began to listen. And then once I began listening and gaining trust, that was when things began to really change. It wasn't, it was through giving away my power and using my power to speak up as a white police chief and to say to my community, you know, out loud that we have a problem here with systemic racism and we need to deal with it. And this was back in 2005. And we brought in some experts from outside the community and we did a task force of 40 people, leaders in the community with minority groups for the first time. And they did a, we did a two day training and facilitated workshop where we came out with two things. First was the presence of institutional racism, which blocked people from accessing the system, not intentional. And the other was lack of economic opportunity for at-risk youth. So the first thing we were able to do, which was easy, was I turned around and took a lot of my drug confiscation money. Instead of using it for enforcement, I used it to create jobs, as did other people in my community. But this whole thing of systemic racism, when the Latino gentleman announced that as one of the findings with the 40 people in the room, three people immediately stood up and said they wanted no part of talking about racism. That's not what this was about. And those people were one, two were university presidents and one was the publisher of a newspaper. And that's when I took my power and stood up as the white police chief and said, yes, we are going to talk about it. So... That's kind of an example on the home front of how I did it.
0: Well, and I, I love just the way you framed it, you know, the best use of power is to give it away. But, you know, it's so cliche, but we can say hard things in a heart-centered way. And my definition of heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And if you don't develop trust and rapport, you're not going to have that connection. You're not going to have that respect. And the trust and rapport comes from not having an agenda or looking for reciprocity. So, so powerful and I love that. Okay, my second question. I've interviewed almost 220 leaders around the globe. We're on season three and I decided that this question we'll always have permanent residency on the show. It gets a lot of laughter. Share with us what imperfections that Ed brings to his heart-centered leadership.
1: Someone once said to me, and I got upset when I first heard it, that he wears his uh, emotions on his sleeve, or he, however that phrase goes. And when I had first heard that, uh, I jump back like, wait a minute, I'm professional and I'm this and I'm that. And, uh, you know, and at the time I was sitting with a, I was talking with a therapist and I had mentioned it to that person. uh, And the person fed it back to me and said, what's wrong with that? And it was the first time I didn't feel ashamed. You know, when that incident happened at the workshop that we did when, these leaders in the community were trying to shoot down what was going on and what was evolving from the community, I started to stir and I found out later two of my police colleagues were watching me and they looked at each other and they said, oh, Ed's going to blow. We know him, you know, um, I didn't blow, but I stood up, but I was angry. And I guess the hard part for me at times, and it's, it is a fault is I have to contain that. And uh, I don't know, I'm not always successful at doing that.
0: Well, and I want to jump in because this is such a nice uh, gateway for me to align kind of some parallels here. And it's going to lead beautifully into my third question. I used to be a disability case manager for over 20 years. And I worked with a lot of first responders and what people don't appreciate, and and just to define first responders, that can be police, fire, uh, paramedics, people don't appreciate that, and this is the words from a police chief that I worked with, you have and get exposure to the lowest level of human behavior possible. You are succumbed to a level of Hyper vigilance that most people will never see in a lifetime and and when you put those two together, it's really hard to come home and have dinner at five o'clock, and there's never a nine to five in a first responder's life. So it leads nicely and piggybacks on what you just said about wearing your your heart or your emotions on your sleeve. My third leadership question is, why are leaders so afraid? to immerse themselves in other people's pain or what I often say as an executive coach is, what do you mean you can't sit in the observer's chair? We have to be able to sit in the observer's chair so we can help that person experiencing pain. Share with us a strategy or something that you did to better your skill set as a leader to do that. And isn't it something we work on for our whole life?
1: Absolutely. It's very it's leadership first, and it's the ability to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And um, when I told you that little story about the young student that was being kicked out of school, you know, I was watching something in real time, and the average person wouldn't see the dynamics, really, of what was behind all this. And when I became back to my, I was at my police department for 15 years and I went off to another police department and became a police chief. Then I worked internationally for a long period of time. And then I came back to my original department and I took over to all these people who were my bosses. And that was a little uncomfortable to begin with, but we got through it. But anyway, one of the things, like I said, you know, like who are all these people in the community that I should be talking to? So the the police chief traditionally had been a very top-down bureaucratic position. And I saw that I had to immerse myself to find out what the heck is going on here, okay? And even I didn't know. So I made it a point that, you know, I had just taken over the job and I had four weeks of a honeymoon and I had a double murder on Christmas Eve. And I went into the police station four o'clock in the morning and, uh, which is unusual because the chief never went in. And, uh, I saw one of my detectives and I says, how's it going? You know, good, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, can I help out in any way? He goes, no, he said, everybody's on the way in, you know, it's Christmas and blah, blah, blah. Okay. All right. I'll be in my office. I'll make coffee or whatever. So about an a half hour later, he comes down the hall and he says to me, Hey chief, there is something you can do. I says, what's that? He says, uh, we got a family that's been in, lobby for about an hour now he said and uh maybe you could talk to him you know it would be a big help so I thought that was a good idea so I went down in the lobby brought up three women two span three Spanish women uh the mother didn't speak English there were two young girls probably in their late teens and um I sat down with them and they were very upset uh they all had blood on them so I could see they were at, they had been to the scene of what was going on. And, uh, and then I said to uh, one of the girls that spoke English, she said, what can I do? And the woman said, she wants to know what's happened with her son. She doesn't know. And I says, well, what's her son's name? And she gave me the name. I says, well, I'll find out. So I went into the office, of the Detective Sergeant, and I says, "Phil," I said, uh, she wants to know about so-and-so, what's going on with him. And Phil says, he's dead. I says, hmm. he says you think we ought to tell him? He goes, yeah. Okay. So I went outside and the office went in back into the room, the interview room with the four of us sitting across the table from them. And uh, I says, I don't know how to tell you this, but her son's dead. And I, before the words came out of my mouth. She knew what I said and she exploded, jumped up, started screaming at the top of her lungs, uh, ran off the door Up the detective bureau, started to grab phones. And I'm thinking like a cop, and I'm saying, don't grab that phone, you don't know the, how to use it, and getting blood all over it and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking of those things. And then she rolls on the floor. And she starts rolling around and screaming. And I had brought a young Latino officer with me, Jose, and I said to him before, I said, Jose, help me with cues on culture here because I don't understand what's going on. And I'm looking over at Jose and I said, Jose, what can I, you know, what can I, what could I have done different? And he goes, you got to let it go, chief. Just let it go. And I did. Then they came back in the room and they sat down and they began to weep the way I understood weeping. Okay. As a white Irish Catholic guy or whatever. While this is all happening, uh, the, the sound level is coming down, but the sobbing is pretty heavy. And then standing in the doorway, all of a sudden, is the head of the investigative unit of the state police. And they take over the jurisdiction on murders in our state, except in Boston. So he's responsible for the investigation. And I look up at him and I, you know, introduce, try to introduce him. And I'm sure he's, he's got his look on his face like, I hope you didn't screw this up. You know what I mean? So I get up, he says, I want to talk to you. So I go down the hall with him and he says to me, Chief, I really wish you hadn't done that. I said, done what? He says, told him about what happened. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, we have an investigation here. He says, and we should have split him up and talked to them separately first. And that emotion that I talked about started to boil inside. And i only been back for four weeks and... I didn't want to shoot from the hip. I wasn't ready for that by any means. And But immediately it went through my head. What if that was a prominent white family sitting in the lobby? Would I have left them there for an hour and then split them up and not tell them what was going on with their family? So I began to, uh, you know, understand that unintentionally people were suffering. And the only way that I could enter into that suffering and start to make changes was to expose myself to it. And I had many more stories like that than the time I was there. I went to funerals and everything else. And I used to do these things in secret so nobody would know. Because the community, the white community, a lot of them would hate me for it. Because I was there to punish them. But once I found out that, They understood I cared. You know, one woman called me one day and she was screaming at me on the phone and she said, your officers are so prejudiced. They're this, they're that. I didn't say a word. And then when she was kind of halfway done, I said, ma'am, the detectives from the drug unit came to me and told me that your son was going to be murdered by another drug dealer. We arrested him. We kept him alive. That was the only place he could be to be alive was in jail. I don't want your son to die. And she burst into tears. So it's being able to get down to a not get down, but I guess go up to a level where you can see beyond the pain and beyond the shouting and everything else and understand what's going on and look at it differently.
0: You know, it's it's emotional regulation. It's it's a skill. And in leadership, being able to bring a limitless value of equanimity, just mental calmness and composure, even to such a horrific conversation like that. And that's what I mean. Like what you've shared today is, is hypervigilance most people can't relate to. So I'm going to switch to my Fab Four. Okay. If I asked your family or your best friends to describe you in one word, what would it be?
1: One word. Different.
0: Oh, I haven't had that one, Ed. (laughs) Share with our listeners a book that you've read at any juncture in your life that really changed
1: you. That's a good question. I've read a lot of good books. I think from a policing standpoint, I've read all different kinds of genres and there's nothing popping at me right now, but recently I have read a couple of books written by Bill Bratton. And for those who don't know, Bill Bratton is the, uh, in my opinion, the foremost authority on policing in America today. He's the former commissioner twice over of New York City, plus the chief of Los Angeles, uh, commissioner in Boston. And he's written a lot of um, good stuff that I've read. Uh, And honestly, I don't agree with everything in his conclusions. But I do agree with one thing that he's very focused on. And that is data-driven solutions. Because data has a tendency not to lie. Yeah, you know, people can turn around and say, oh, data can be manipulated. Yeah, I can. All right. But for instance, when I'm going to a community meeting and people are saying, they're all, they're driving like maniacs out there. They're going a hundred miles an hour. They go, okay, all right, fine. So I put a computer out the next week that takes the speed of every car that goes by for the whole week. All right. And then I go back to the community meeting and then I show them the data a couple of fast cars, you know, but whatever it did to their emotions blew it all out of proportion, all right? So now we gotta be looking at what is reality, okay? So data brings to me, you know, when I'm looking at crime and looking at statistics, the real picture to work on from there. And now that you said, you know, the other book uh, I would have to say is probably anything that's been written by Peter Senge or Otto Scharmer who are experts at systems thinking from MIT. And what I did was I used the application with my good friend, Syrah, who was also taught by Peter Senge, how to use systems thinking when analyzing problems in crime. And that's where we got to systemic racism.
0: Uh, You said one of my favorite lines that comes rolling off my tongue at least twice a week. Data doesn't lie. I love it. (laughs) It's the first time I've heard somebody else say that. Okay, I'm going to grant you a wish. And you get to have dinner with a leader that you look up to or aspire. Now, this leader could be living or they could have passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation?
1: Abraham Lincoln, without a doubt. Uh, I've written so many, I've read so many books about him. One thing I loved, love about him and what we would talk about is, and I have to work on it even today, is change. You know, um, he went from, you know, this bit about, uh, well, I don't want slavery to expand. You know, leave it where it is. The Constitution says it's fine. Uh, and it made him hate it on both sides of the coin. But many times as a leader, you're restricted as to what you can do. And if he came out and he said to me, Ed, I'm going to free them all the first day I get in. Well, you know what? Yeah, you could do that. But you're going to have so much grief from doing it. And it's going to be so difficult. And you're probably not going to get away with it. And you're going to get beat up so badly. That you have to be able to combine being able to take your lumps with being able to move forward. So I'd ask him, how did you do that effectively? You know, because I I found that no matter how what I've done, where I've worked, I hit the wall at some point. People are that's it. Whether it's right or wrong, they're not going any further. So I think you know that's the question. And I would ask him, how did you deal with that?
0: I think he's come up once or twice on the show in the in the three years. And uh, I think it'd be pretty cool to have dinner with him as well. So before we close out the show, it's it's a sentence that I'm going to ask you to finish. But I just want to say it was so delightful to meet you and... I can see why you're not in full retirement yet. There's still, there's still a lot of passion and you have so many transferable skills and stories and leadership qualities to, to mentor, you know, our up and coming youth and bring leaders to another level. So I look forward to staying connected. But my favorite part of this whole interview is that you've come from uh, a systematic vocation. And you figured out how to wrap heart-centered leadership around it. And that's why I wanted you on the show, because that's hard to do. So I'm going to, oh, and I'm a fellow Irish person. So (laughs) I mean, I am married 30 years this year, Ed, so we're going to Ireland. So there you go. I was Irish before I got married, and then I married an Irishman. So I just, I can't get away. So there's another nice connection we have. So enjoy your time in sunny Florida And finish the show out for me by finishing this sentence. Heart-centered leadership is?
1: Heart-centered leadership is humility. Understanding that when you can show your humility and your humbleness, how that is an empowering thing for other people. You know, when I worked in Moldova, I ended up working with a police chief there who did incredible things. And, you know, I was brought in as the an expert. And uh, one of the things that I always made it a, two things I made it to do was I always tried to show my openness and humility by being practically humble. And, and I say that in the sense of, you know, I'll get the door for him or I will, uh, you know, do things by example. And then the other thing that I've always used and I felt to be very effective and disarming was to talk about my mistakes. And, you know, when I do that, and when I did that, I tried to show that it's okay to make mistakes and that we can pick it up and, you know, do it again.
0: Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today learn some new tools for your leadership from our amazing heart-centered guest and if you like the show we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to and we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time and if you want some more heart-centered goodness head over to our daily blog masteringtheheart.com